Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast. This week, we're introducing a new segment called In the Dirt. It's going to be a bi-weekly segment that's going to come every other week in between our interview episodes. Not to worry, the interview episodes aren't going anywhere. I'm enjoying the deep dives we're able to do with athletes, product designers, and event organizers. What I've been missing was the opportunity to talk to you about current affairs, things that are going on in gravel, new product releases, things that are happening in a more timely manner. I have to say throughout this COVID-19 crisis that I've just wanted to talk to you more and I've explored things like Instagram Live and Facebook Live and YouTube Live events. But at the end of the day, we're a podcast and we've got a bunch of loyal listeners out there. And I thought it would be nice to just have an opportunity to talk about things that are going on in the world of gravel and how it's being reflected in the world around us. So I've invited a co-host, Randall Jacobs. He's the co-founder of Thesis Bike and a local San Francisco resident most of the time to join me as a co-host and help me engage in this conversation that is just a little bit more timely. So I'm going to have my thoughts and Randall is going to have his thoughts about what's going on and what's relevant to us, but we also want to hear from you. So we've set up a call line at 415-843-1701 where you can share your thoughts. If there's a new product you've seen, you have a question about, feel free to leave us a voicemail and we may even play it on air. So with that, Let's dive right into the first episode of In the Dirt. Randall, I want to thank you for joining me in this new journey of co-hosting the podcast. Yeah, absolutely, Craig. This is uh, it's fun to be taking our our ride conversations and bringing them to a more public forum. Uh, plenty of nerdery to to come. Yeah, absolutely. It's been you know it's been interesting during the pandemic. I've just felt like. There's a lot going on that I want to talk about. And as I've mentioned before to people, oftentimes with the one-on-one interviews, I may be two months out from publishing that interview. So it started to make sense that if we can have a discussion every other week and drop these podcasts into the listeners' feeds, we can cover a lot more subjects. We will purposely not go as deep as I go in the, in the interview format, but it will be good to just have a discussion about what's going on in Gravel this week. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so what's what's been on your mind this week? Well, so I'm up in Mount Shasta, California, um, and I just got back from a circumnavigation of the mountain. And the thing that really struck me is just how like versatile these machines are. Uh, specifically, like the the you know 650B uh, wheel size, you can set that up in a way that is really fun on the road. But then when you get to some super sketchy, you know, mountain bike terrain in some back country, like I was in yesterday, uh, it's also, uh, entirely capable and fun. And, uh, just being able to have one machine that you bring with you and be able to do all the different types of riding you want to do is, is, is pretty outstanding. Uh, and it's something that is really enabled by the types of equipment we have available today versus say, 10 years ago when hydraulic disc brake, disc brake road bikes were not a thing and you know tubeless tires on road bikes were still coming of age and the like. Yeah, I feel like there's that constant question out there in the gravel world of what is a gravel bike. And frankly, I've always held the position that it, it's not super important what you think it is as long as it does the thing you want it to do. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think that that kind of nails it on the head is that it should do not just the thing, but all the things you want it to do. 
And so like there's like getting away from N plus one and having like having the potential for having one bike that does all the things uh, that you want to do with the exception of maybe, you know, something you'd want to take a dual suspension shred sled out for. Yeah. So in that circumnavigation, you were mentioning to me the other day that you were hitting kind of long stretches of road, then also unpaved road and then some single track. So how'd you have your bike set up? Uh, so I'm running 650, uh, 650B tubeless. I have a WTB Venture up front for a bit, of, bit more traction and then a byway in the rear, which is a semi-slick. Uh, so, you know, really fast rolling. And this combination is kind of the, the best of best all around setup for me. Uh, I'm pretty, you know, confident drifting, uh, in the back if I need to, uh, and then dropper post, uh, 10 degree flare bar, uh, what else did I have there? Um, I have a new little um, gear uh, uh, bottle, I, I should say. Um, so you, you know these like gear storage uh, bottles that you can buy and it replaces a bottle and you put it in the bottle cage. Well, I got one that came with free kimchi, um, just a you know plastic jar that had kimchi in it. And pull you know when I was done eating, I filled that with all my gear and strapped it in with a toe strap, and it actually works phenomenally well and I didn't have to spend any excess money on it. So I had all my, you know, stuff in case I, you know, had extra sealants and a Dyna plug and a tool and a chain breaker and all the things that, you know, you would want to have so you don't get caught out in the backcountry when you're, you know, 10 miles away from any, you know, hope of uh, somebody being able to pick you up. And Mount Shasta is pretty remote and I know it's the home of Grinduro this year. I haven't done any gravel riding up there, but I've been in that neck of the woods a number of times hiking. Were you super remote the entire time? Did you have any resupply points in that loop? Um, didn't really have any resupply points. And actually I did end up running out of water um, when I was kind of midway through the remote area. Uh, so that would be one thing that um, I would definitely bring more water on that and probably a water filter. Uh, that was the the one thing that was kind of foolish of me to to forget. Uh, but uh, yeah, and then in terms of the terrain, like a lot of the stuff I was hitting, there was some, it was mostly double track fire road um, to get out to where the double track fire road started on the northeastern side of the mountain. There was quite a bit of road riding uh, as well. Uh, uh, as far as like the general riding around here, um, one thing that's really sweet is I'm staying in the town of Mount Shasta and there's some super fast and flowy uh, single track mountain bike trails. And it's the sort of thing where it's smooth enough where I can hit it at full speed, you know, with no suspension, um, you know, in my drops with the dropper in the 650s. And it is just absolutely perfect. Uh, so I've been having a lot of fun on those around here as well. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I've been thinking about storage capacity and water capacity quite frequently lately. I've been sort of tackling some of these DIY gravel challenges and looking like, how can I not stop anywhere? Because that's my my sort of my personal preference right now is to not be going into stores and not using public water fountains. And hopefully that's going to keep me safe during the COVID-19 crisis. But you look at the gravel bike and as long as you have enough bottle cages laying around, you know, you can have four or five bottles of water on a bike. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that too, like there's, there's an aversion that I think comes from the road bike uh, mentality to things like frame bags uh, but uh, for as an example, um, you know, our, our friend Mark Mendoza of Post has his new um, half frame bag 
and it's it mounts really slickly in the upper part of the of the triangle and really centralizes mass and you could load it up with everything you could possibly need for a proper you know day of riding and i don't see why you know this isn't adopted more broadly for just day-to-day riding uh the the incremental weight is not going to have a material impact on your ride experience but having all that stuff with you is allow you going to allow you to go out further and not have a bad time if something happens and you're not prepared yeah, I do suspect you're right. Like I kind of feel like, and I don't want to be disparaging in the way I phrase this, but there's a little bit of a, a road bike bias in the sport of gravel in many many respects. And I, I certainly am guilty of it, sort of thinking about how the bike should look or feel when I got my first gravel bike five or six years ago. It was very much framed around my experience as a road rider. And the more I've let go of that bias, the happier I've been, whether it's carrying a quarter frame bag or a bar bag or certainly a dropper post and most definitely 650 wheels. Like I'm very glad and I'm finding myself getting even more open to the idea that innovation and performance is going to come from all angles of the sport. And probably it's least likely that it's coming from the roadside. Um, I would say I agree with that almost uh, almost fully with the exception of I really want the accessories that I bring on the ride to fit the ride that I'm going after. And, you know, philosophically, there's really no reason why a bike that is, you know, capable enough for, say, what I was doing, what I've been doing up here on single track and adventure riding. Uh, there's no reason why that bike can't also be a properly capable, you know, performance road bike uh, if you put some road wheels on there. And I, that's kind of one of these compromises that I see with some uh, designs out there. And if all you're doing is that sort of gravel riding, then great. Um, but I, I don't like. I like the idea of being able to have one bike that could be your performance road bike as well as doing everything else. And for that, um, you know, being able to quickly add and remove gear uh, to fit the ride, I think is pretty critical. Yeah, I think that's obviously one of the really cool things when you, if you have the luxury of having a second wheel set. And you can dance between 650 and 700 and take the aforementioned bags off the bike and really kind of become a road bike again. It is, it's quite interesting and super liberating to have that in one bicycle. No doubt about that. Yeah. Though I will say that said, like, obviously I have, I have both wheel sets. I ride my 650Bs 90% of the time. Like even if I'm going out on some, like I'm, I'm up here right now, I didn't even bring my 700s uh, because any road riding that I'm going to do is, is even if I'm going out like an hour, hour and a half uh, to, um, you know, on a, on a bigger loop to, to hit something, ultimately what I want to hit is an epic section of trail. And the 650s are efficient enough on the road and feel good enough on the road where it's, if you had to have one set for everything, I, I think it's the way to go. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. In fact, I've found myself lately longing for a second set of 650B wheels simply because that's my preference. I'm, r- I'm rarely grabbing the 700s, but I do want different tire choices because as you know, I, t- I tend to ride more mountain bike trails. So my tire setup is definitely more off-roady, but I am with you. Like I would love maybe to have a set of, of, you know, byways on both sides or IRC Boken, something like that, where I can ride quite a bit far north on the roads and kind of tackle some trails that I wouldn't normally hit. Try the, uh, the mullet setup works really well. A little bit more tread up fronts, 
um, and you have less mass on the front wheel, so that is less rolling resistance. It's less impactful in terms of your rolling resistance, but the, then the semi-slick, uh, most of your mass as you're hammering on the road is going to be in the back, and that's going to have the bigger impact there. I've found that it's been a pretty good combo. If I hadn't just put a massive hole in my byway <laughs> over the weekend, which I'll talk about later. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, interestingly, what's been on my mind this week, actually, I think dovetails nicely into what we've just been talking about. I've been thinking a lot about the recent release of full suspension gravel bikes. And most recently, there was the the Cannondale, Topstone, Lefty, and before that had been the, um, the Niner MCR. And these are both full suspension gravel bikes. And Every time one of these pictures hits the internet, it causes more controversy and stir in the gravel internet than than you would expect. Um, so I've just sort of been ruminating on this, and you know, I, I've often thought that with the riding I'm doing, one of these full suspension gravel bikes would certainly have its advantages. They both are designed for gravel riders. So with the Topstone, I think. We're talking about a uh, the lefty fork has 30 millimeters of travel, and they've got basically compliance built into the rear end. And then in that Niner MCR, you've got a Fox 40 millimeter fork and a, a very gravel suspension tuned 50 millimeters in the back. I think what gets lost in the internet when people see pictures of these bikes, I think they're thinking that they're putting uh, gravel tires on bikes that have 140 millimeters of suspension. Whereas the, the fact is that there's very thoughtful designers and product managers putting these bikes forth for a very specific purpose. I will fully acknowledge that that specific purpose may not be your cup of tea if you don't ride steep technical terrain. But I think it's foolish for the industry and the gravel community to completely discount these bikes as tomfoolery because I do think they have a purpose. Uh, I think that there's something there. And I I will say that, um, and uh, I don't know if you saw James Huang's uh, review of the Topstone with the the fork, um, but he he said he had a great time with it. Oh, it's uh, in cycling tips. I'd recommend it. Uh, And that I've, I've long, as soon as I saw that lefty Ocho fork, I was like, if I was, you know, if ever there was going to be a gravel bike with suspension, this would be the sort of fork to do it with. Um, and that seems to be of the design, the full suspension designs that I've seen. It's the one that seems most compelling. Um, I'm still, I, I still don't find them very compelling generally. Um, if I was going to, like for, for me, I want a bike that looks and feels and rides like a road bike um, when I'm not on the dirt. And in fact, even on the dirt, like the the responsiveness of something that's unsuspended, maybe with a higher volume tire, uh, that keeps the the rolling resistance. You get that added capability of the tire and so on. But you're not uh, you're not slowed down by you know suspension and you know its weight and that kind of slop in the system. Uh, that's really what I'm going for when I'm I'm riding in this style. And otherwise, I just want a dual suspension mountain bike, a cross country bike. If I want something super high performing, um, would generally for me, feel like, like the, the better option. So it's, it's, I think that as suspension gets lighter and more efficient, um, that there could be something there, but, but 
inevitably there's going to be like you're immediately compromising it as a as a road machine like it's always going to feel ponderous because of the extra weight because of the the lack of immediacy and response because of all that slop you've added to the system uh so that's the the big concern i have with these types of bikes yeah i think you're obviously making a a personal choice to be on an extreme you know so on the on the one hand you know, there may be these all road bikes that you can slam a, a 30 or 32 C tire in if you're lucky. And you're certainly, you can go ride those off road, you know, plain and mm-hmm. simple. That That's totally fine. And then on the other end of the spectrum is clearly going to be these, whether it's a full suspension bike or bikes that have massive tire clearance and are really built around um, more of a mountain bike style, you know, methodology you're going to have this spectrum and then somewhere in the middle, you're going to have these extremely versatile bikes like you're riding today that can go both ways and be very adept and have very minor limitations on, on each side, which is currently where my quiver lies. And maybe if someone shipped one of these bikes to me, I would sort of ride it certain amounts of times, but other times I would, I would be grabbing, you know, my, my thesis and, and out there, enjoying what I'm enjoying today. I, I don't know. It's just, it's been interesting. And I, I, I'm fascinated by how kind of polarizing these bikes are anytime they're posted. So wink, wink, nudge, nudge, any product managers out there. If you want to send Craig Dalton a full suspension gravel bike, uh, he would happily accept it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it also, you know, it's something you and I have discussed, just the notion of suspension in general for riders mm. and how, uh, many people don't think about it in the most simplistic ways, as you referenced slightly earlier in this conversation. Simply getting a higher volume tire is your first line of defense in creating some suspension. And there's several other intermediary steps that, if you find yourself kind of leading towards that way where you you feel like you need more suspension, there are definitely things that you can do to your current setup to give it a bit more compliance. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've, I actually, I mean, we, we have anyone who, who wants to hear kind of a full spiel on this can listen to my, the tech segments that I, I did with, uh, the pod, uh, on, you know, suspension for gravel bikes, but the long and the short is like tires, like tire volume going with higher volume tubeless tires that are supple on wide rims. So you can run them at lower pressures without them squirming around like that. Absolutely is the best way to get, um, not just compliance, but you're adding with that, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, rolling efficiency over rough terrain. It is a perfect spring. So you're not losing a bunch of uh, uh, energy to just the suspension uh, system itself. Uh, you get a bigger contact patch. Like it's just, you know, there's all these add on benefits. And if you want, say, like slightly more efficiency on the way to the trailhead, then just pump them up a little bit higher when you leave. And then when you get to the trailhead, you know, a little bit of a, uh, a release of air uh, to get them optimized for dirt, and then you're off. On, uh, you're off. I mean, that's often how I ride. I'll leave from the city, uh, from San Francisco, ride up to Tamarancho, hour twenty minutes on the road, and you know, be chasing down roadies on the road on the way there, and then it's all dirt on the way back home with just a slight release of air, and it's kind of the best of all worlds. Yeah, it's funny. A, a buddy of mine just built up an absolutely gorgeous open up with custom paint. And I started drilling into the pictures he was posting and I saw these little 32 millimeter tires. Ah, no, why? 
And no, those are his, that's his road set, right? I, I, I hope so. I haven't had a chance <laughs> to reach out to him yet. Yeah, truly. It's just, I, I remember starting at that point because the bike I, I got originally, it came with 32s and I was really looking for a commuter bike that could ride over the headlands on my way to San Francisco. And I just remember how liberating it was when I went to a big volume tire and how not for one solitary second did I miss those 32s. Yeah, I, it, it, they're slower. They're less fun. Um, you're more likely to flack a, a rim on the rock or what have you. There's really zero benefit. In fact, the 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 benefit of a tire of that volume is really on the road where you're seeing people shift away from the 23 and 25 millimeter, um, you know, high pressure setups of the past. And now, you know, running, you know, 28, 30, 32 slicks and, you know, benefiting from the lower rolling resistance and more comfort and bigger patch and everything else. Yeah. One um, of my sort of immediate concerns was that he will not like the sport because of those tires. And if he follows yeah. me on a route on Mount Tam, I'm going to take him somewhere that inevitably I, I really can't think of anywhere where that is going to be the ideal setup. Yeah. Loan him a set of your six fifties. <laughs> that would be my advice. Um, I think that I think I will to just sort of get him, uh, get him, give him an opportunity to understand what it feels like. I also think that's a good tip for newer riders because a lot of newer riders coming to the sport, rightfully so, they may be very inexperienced off road. And, oh, yeah. you know, in, in a lot of people are getting these bikes with pretty narrow tires and, you know, they're either going to think that the bike is super limited and it can go only go on these super smooth fire roads, or if they're ambitious and get out there on, on some of the, the harder trails, they're just not going to like it, or they're going to put themselves in a situation descending where they just don't have the control that would have been readily at their fingertips should they have selected a, a wider tire. Well, I mean, so we can kind of, I can give you a, like a quick summary of like the things that I find. So you and I are pretty experienced riders and a lot of the same things that, that I would recommend to a newbie, uh, are the things that I'm still using as, as a more experienced rider because it extends the capability like fat 650Bs, dropper post, uh, a flared handlebar so that you have a little bit more leverage when you're in the drops uh, you know, hydraulic disc brakes are a no brainer. If you're, if you're on the cusp and, and wondering about budget, like don't compromise on your brakes. Uh, and then lastly, like one by drivetrains to keep it simple. Um, and so you can have that dropper post hooked into your front shifter. Uh, these are kind of like the big five for me of, of any sort of, uh, gravel bike that's going to have the, the capability of, a you know, borderline cross actually better than a, uh, a cross country bike. Um, from say like the early days of mountain biking when everything was rigid and they had terrible, uh, rim brakes, uh, that were, uh, and, you know, narrow rims and non-tubeless tires and, you know, had a three by, uh, drivetrain set up where the chain was always falling off. You remember the bad old days? <laughs> Indeed I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I'm sure we'll touch on this subject from time and time again on this podcast, this segment. Each week, I did want to give us an opportunity to kind of talk about things that we just can't let go of, whether it's in the sport of cycling or otherwise. Did you want to go first this week, Randall, or you want me to kick it off? Uh, you can kick it off. Yeah. So what I can't let go of this week is the Dyna plug. 
And it's not a specific plug about Dynaplug, the company, but I do love what they're doing for the sport. Dynaplugs, for those of you who are listening that aren't familiar with them, it's just a little piece of rubber that's typically um, housed with a sort of piercing mechanism. So if you get a hole in your tire, you can push this little rubber piece in and pull out the tool and it's going to seal a hole. And the reason why I can't let go of it this week is because it allowed me to ride home. It allowed me to um, fix a flat. I had a pretty big size hole after descending a trail called Deer Park off of Mount Tam that had recently been graded and frankly had become a super highway. And I blasted through the rock gardens at mock speed and and realized towards the bottom that it started to get a little bit soft. And I, I know from previous experience that I don't get any cell phone coverage in mere woods and I did not want to have to change the tube. So I pulled over, grabbed the dyno plug really quickly, inserted it into the tire, pulled it out. It seemed to seal it, inflated it up and I was able to ride home. So a big shout out to my friends at Dynaplug for that and definitely encourage you to to get some type of Dynaplug solution in your kit because believe me, it's worth every penny to have one of these kits out there if the alternative is walking 10 miles home. Yeah, I can definitely second, uh, second that emotion. That in a, uh, a little bottle of uh, extra sealant. And then that way, if, you're, if you're, all your sealant uh, leaks out before your Dynaplug gets in there properly, you, you can still uh, you know, salvage the ride. Yeah, that's a good tip. And I'm, I'm definitely, after this weekend's experience, definitely kind of revisiting what my to-go kit looks like and making sure that if I'm out on some of these epic rides that I've got a little bit more kit to help me repair a variety of things from, you know, from flats to, to what have you. So Randall, what's on your mind this week? What can't you let go of? Uh, well, I mean, given like, given everything happening, uh, you know, uh, in our, in our national conversation, I've been thinking a lot about just inclusion, uh, within our sport and, you know, there's like inclusion and accessibility, and so I get to, you know, in my role, I get to have a lot of conversations with people who um, are in many cases like getting their first serious machine. And so there's the element of inclusion that's about making the sport more accessible to um, people who are just getting into it. So there's that initial kind of learning curve of like, what equipment do I get? How do I ride it? Where can I ride? What do I need to bring with me on the ride in, in order to, you know, not have issues, um, you know, like, like Dynaplugs being an example uh, so there's all these elements of getting up to speeds where you can feel comfortable on the machine. You know, in some cases, it's even like, you know, what do I wear? Because I, I, I don't feel comfortable in spandex, um, things like this. But then also just like our, our sport is still um, gravel cycling. If you look at the events, you look at the, like, I don't see, uh, I think there's an opportunity to open it up to a more diverse crowd. Uh, and so, you know, one of the ways that I, um, really enjoy doing that personally is hosting group rides and and reaching out to um, you know to more communities to get them in. Obviously, that's not a thing right now. So the thing that I've been pondering recently is like, how do we issue a warm welcome to anybody who might be gravel curious, regardless of where they're coming from? Yeah, I think it's super important. Obviously, it's it's very timely. You bring that up. I was listening to the Paceline podcast, and Celine Yeager was having a conversation with an African-American woman who she, she, she talked about how, you know, at a certain point in their relationship, she just figured it was easy. Like this is a woman who enjoys 
riding a bike and she showed up and developed skills and friends and, and blah, 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 and was embraced by the community. But she also kind of stepped back and said, well, as a woman, I know just as a woman, I, I had some friction in getting involved in the sport, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So for being an African-American woman getting involved in the sport, you know, it could have been even more challenging. And, and her guest really kind of laid that home and, and said, you know, yes, it is a challenge. And yes, she was intimidated. But when she showed up for her first group ride, she selected it very carefully. She wanted to make sure it, it seemed inviting and not elitist. But someone just said, hey, are you here for the group ride? And I think that's one of those things that as a sector of the sport, gravel has sought to be inclusive. But it's a great reminder to to just think about when you show up to those group rides, you see, see, see someone with knobby tires on a drop bar bike that's hanging out, just reach out and say hello. You know, you don't have to be best friends, but let them know that that it's okay and give them some trail advice, you know, bring them out there with you. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Now the, uh, the bicycle as a vehicle for connection is, uh, one of the, the, the themes that I, I constantly harp upon, but I, I think it's very much true. Like if, if you're, if you're showing up on a bike to a group ride, there's this commonality of this shared love of this experience that is, uh, a way for us to, to, um, you know, break down boundaries and really connect with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Randall, I think that's a good way to end this inaugural episode of In the Dirt. I appreciate you and look forward to continuing the conversation, man. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us in the first episode of In the Dirt. I hope you enjoyed it and definitely we encourage your feedback. As always, you can hit me up at craig at thegravelride.bike. You can use the new call-in line at 415 843 1701. The concept is going to continue to evolve and it will only evolve in the way you want it to if we hear from you. So definitely shout us out. Until then, stay safe and here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. Mm-hmm.